Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As you know, on this podcast, we do like to compare and discuss the macro and asset allocation views of the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as those from our third-party asset manager partners. So joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dre. Excited to welcome to the podcast as well, Russ Kosterich of BlackRock. Russ is a managing director, portfolio manager, and Russ serves as a member of the global allocation team. So Russ, Jason, it's great to be with you both here on the podcast. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients of UBS, and looking forward to our discussion and to hearing your views. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So as we're recording, today is Wednesday, November 30th. I think it's likely fair to say at this point, investors are eager to turn the page on what has been a challenging and volatile 2022 for the markets. Before we dive into your respective outlooks for the year ahead, 2023, Russ, curious to hear your thoughts on the recent shift in investor sentiment. We have seen some upside across risk assets in recent weeks. Uh, Curious, is the momentum justified or might investors have a case of FOMO, fear of missing out heading into year end? Well, you know, thanks. Look, I I think it's it's a bit of both. There's certainly been some momentum trade that's come back into the market. And you you see that in sort of the performance of some of the names and ideas and themes that have been working well all year. Some of the more defensive parts of the market, uh, energy, uh, although that's stumbled in recent days. But I, I do think that some things have changed. Not not enough that you want to, you know, simply load up and, and go back to necessarily being overweight stocks, but enough to give you a little bit more confidence that maybe we're in the process of putting in the lows. And I think people obviously took some uh, comfort uh, from from the recent uh, inflation data. I think there's growing evidence that the economy is slowing, although probably not as fast as the Fed would like. Uh, and you're also seeing, which is going to be crucial, and we'll get more information on it uh, in a couple of days, that the labor market is moderating. Now, you know, again, you have to qualify all of these. But, you know, if, if what really is driven this terrible year for stocks and, and one of the worst years for bonds in history is the unexpected surge in inflation, the unhinging of inflation expectations and the dramatic and sort of rapid tightening by the Fed. If the conditions that provoke that are starting to moderate and the Fed is probably getting at least closer to the terminal Fed funds rate, I do think that at least sets you up for better market conditions and, and removes some of that left tail that people were talking about a couple of months ago where you know, the S&P was going down to 3000 Thank you, Russ. Jason, I know we've spoken about this on recent podcasts. Curious to hear your thoughts on the momentum we've seen recently in the markets. Does it have any fundamental backing to it, or are we looking at a FOMO scenario here with just a month or so left to go here in 2022? Well, I would agree with Russ that it's kind of a combination of both factors. We know at the start of the quarter, just from the data we can see in terms of how investors are positioned, that sentiment was quite poor and positioning, certainly among institutional investors and hedge funds, was kind of on the lighter side, which meant that any kind of good news on the economic front would cause them to perhaps you know, re-engage, particularly if they're worried about the market's rallying into year-end and you know, not being participating in, in you know, at a final rally in a year that's been very difficult. 
but the magnitude, I think, of the performance we've seen over the past you know, six weeks for equities rallying has certainly been helped by the fundamental news, uh, you know, showing that there is you know, a slowing of the economy, a little bit of stuff in the labor market. We got some further data today with the jolts, uh, you know, job openings continue to kind of tick down. But I think what the real kind of the major catalyst was the data when we got to CPI inflation data for October, which, you know, was kind of a better than expected kind of across the board. So it sort of reinforced the view that, you know, inflation is, is coming down. Uh, and, it, and it sort of renewed some hopes that, you know, maybe a recession could be avoided or if one it materializes, it's going to be on the milder side. I think that's what you've seen markets from a fundamental perspective have, have uh, you know, been pricing and recently. That's likely been overshot, perhaps by this technical tailwind of, of the markets kind of rallying. But I think it's, it's so it's you know kind of a combination of both factors have helped uh, contribute to this you know thus far kind of fourth quarter rally. So if we turn to the year ahead, Russ, perhaps starting with the big picture, curious to hear your overall outlook for the U.S. and the global economy. Specific to the U.S. economy, of course, there's been a lot of speculation this year, which at times has fueled volatility in the markets as to whether or not a recession is on the horizon. Do you feel a recession might be inevitable in 2023, or could perhaps the U.S. economy achieve a soft landing? You know, we think a soft landing is possible. Uh, I I don't think a U.S. recession is inevitable, and and part of the reason for that is, you know, the economy has had a tremendous amount of momentum over the past couple of years, and by now we all know the reasons for that. Unprecedented stimulus, resilience by the consumer – and I think it's important to remember that unlike you know most recessions, this was not brought about by imbalances in the economy. It was brought about by a public health crisis, and that's important because you know typically when you go into recession, there's there are imbalances that have to be addressed as you come out of it. And of course, the best example recently was at the recession after the 2007-2008 financial crisis. You had a consumer that was more indebted than they'd ever been. You had the destruction of trillions of dollars of home equity. That took a long time to come back from and then created a very deep recession, a very slow recovery. Uh, we're in a different place coming into this, and it doesn't mean that you can't have a recession. But we think that if you do get one, it will be mild and relatively brief. So the importance of that is you know, when you think about what's going to do well in 2023, uh, even if you think there is a recession – to distinguish between sort of the more garden variety, vanilla type we've had in the past and the sort of more dire circumstances that, that are most in our memory in, in 2008, 2009. Uh, you know, and the you know, reasons that's important is earnings may not collapse, particularly if you have an environment where nominal GDP stays positive. If we, you know, have a soft land or even a mild recession, we're not expecting a violent spike in the default cycle. So, you know, these are considerations that are going to become important uh, as you think about your asset allocation for 2023. Russ, uh, you know, you made a great point. That's something that I've thought a lot about this year is, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic that has completely dislocated and distorted economic activity. We, you know, just, you know, the consumption of goods accelerating, you know, know, last year versus services, and now we're getting sort of a rebalancing and I've been probably on the more optimistic end of the spectrum of like, you know, the possibility of getting a soft landing. And partly because when I look at all this, you know, I think the traditional sort of cycle analysis, economic analysis, it can't really properly account for some of these dislocations and distortions. And when you start to think about the data maybe being more reflective, just the economy getting back to normal as opposed to deterioration, it can at least you can sort of paint a better kind of picture. But, you know, there's, there's not a lot of precedent to be able to do this type of analysis. 
So are there certain things that when you you think about what the pandemic has caused and sort of dislocations and how you look historically that you used to like, well, we have to sort of maybe discount this type of data or kind of maybe put more emphasis on this to to think like, how do we kind of assess where we're going to go from here? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I think it goes to an important point, which is, look, we're all data dependent. And, you know, our first instinct is often to go back and try to find an historical analog. And I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, these are unique circumstances. Uh, history can only be so much of a guide. But, you know, to your question, I, I think there are at least three areas where, you know, this time there are some differences that you have to take into account. You know, one is the consumer. Uh, you know, again, the consumer came into this uh, recession with a record low unemployment rate, uh, a, a much stronger balance sheet than at any point in the last 20 years and record low debt servicing costs. And then on top of it, you put, you know, trillions of dollars of stimulus in, the, in consumer wallets. Now, I have no doubt consumption is going to slow, but it, it's been pretty resilient. And I think it's resilient for, for all of those reasons. Uh, a second related issue is the labor market. You know, there are just factors going on that I really don't think anyone has a complete handle on. And a lot of people left the labor market, whether you're talking about, you know, the quit rate in the hospitality industry, whether you're talking about retirement, early retirement by people 55 and older, those are dynamics that, you know, are, are maybe unique to the cycle, and they're going to be important for how sticky wages are. And then finally, and I think everyone is aware of this, there have been the supply chain bottlenecks. Uh, those are in the process of easing. You know, if you look at things like inventory to new order ratios, if you look at delivery times, if you look at... You know, the number of ships that are that are parked off the port of Long Beach, you know, those things have all corrected to a large extent. And while there are lingering supply chain issues, the fact that some of those have interacted with other inflationary pressures, uh, it's going to be important to keep in mind that that may also provide some relief as some of those one-off issues start to fade. So I, I do think there are a number of factors on the, on the labor market in the consumer balance sheet, in, in global supply chains that make this cycle very unique. Actually, so another kind of follow-up question from this, something else I've, I've been thinking about is, you know, monetary policy. And we know that you know, the Fed has been very aggressive raising rates and, and we'll get Jay Powell giving a speech today, maybe giving a glimpse of where they go from here. But, you know, historically we know monetary policy, at least the assumption has been, you know, it operates with, you know, quote, kind of long and variable legs. I think even Jay Powell is going to use that term, which means it takes anywhere from nine, 12 months for the full effects of monetary policy timing to take effect. But something else that, you know, it's been talked about extensively this year is, you know, financial conditions and how financial conditions have tightened and the Fed is focused on tighter financial conditions. Yet I'm sort of old enough to remember that, you know, prior to the financial crisis, that term was never really used that much. It's, it seems like it's a post-GFC kind of concept. And I've seen some people argue that, you know, what really matters more is tighter financial conditions more so than, you know, higher rates. And financial conditions tighten earlier this year. They've eased up a little bit in the fourth quarter. So that's really what matters more is financial conditions continue to gain tighter versus the argument of the long and variable lags, which the full effects, I think, will only really kind of play out next year. Is this something that you, you yourself, your team kind of think about, like that impact of, of how monetary policy is interacting in the economy today? Because it's a very different economy today than back in you know the 70s or 80s, the last time we had a high inflation situation. Yeah, and no, I think that's exactly right. And you know, just to follow up on that last point, I mean, clearly we're in an environment where you know, it is just <laughs> desire to go back and again, you know, hang your hat on data. And if you go back to the 70s, you've got a world where 
Financial leverage was much lower. Sovereign debt was much lower. China was not even a, a relevant part of the global economy. And so clearly there, there are some pretty fundamental changes. I, I do follow, and we do spend a lot of time on financial conditions, but I would say that it's a really tricky concept. One, because it's one of those you know, concepts in finance that we all throw around, but it's not as if there's an agreed-upon definition. And what, what further complicates it, is, is, as you all know and, and many of the listeners know, is on the one hand, you know, financial conditions are used to predict the performance of financial assets, but a lot of what goes into financial conditions is the performance of financial assets. So if you think about, you know, one of the better known metrics, such as the, the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index, what goes into it? Credit spreads, equity returns, the dollar. These are all things we're also trying to forecast. So there, there is this circularity that you have to work through. But I, I, I think that the, the broader point around it is right, that Rates are a large part of it, but you have to also examine the the broader set of what I'd call the availability of money. So, you know, the way I'd like to kind of frame it is if if rates, or and particularly real rates, are the cost of money, financial conditions also give you the availability of money, and clearly that has changed dramatically over the year. But I do think we are seeing signs that they, they are easing. Uh, you see that in lower market volatility. You see that in the pretty dramatic and, and rapid deceleration, de- depreciation of the dollar and the tightening of credit spreads. Uh, so I, I do think that we're in a place that is, if not hospitable for financial assets, at least represents much less of a tailwind than was the case, uh, pardon me, much less of a headwind than was the case a couple of months back. You know, that, that's certainly the case. Um, you know, like the, the economy is different today than it was 30, 40 years ago. So the reliance on you know, financial conditions as a way to think about tightening up policy and its impact on the economy, especially as we become sort of more financialized. I think it's, it's relevant, but I also sometimes feel like we overemphasize the importance of that as opposed to ultimately what does just tighter rates mean for the economy. There was a, I think it was a former Fed governor, Jeremy Stein, who you know, he made a comment that despite all the tools that the Fed has, the only thing that can really reach into all the different cracks and crevices of the economy is interest rate policy. You raise, you raise rates, it's going to flow through everything. It's a blunder instrument, but ultimately, it's the one that's going to be the most probably impactful, and the full effect probably won't happen until next year. Yeah, no, I think that's. I think, and I think that is the tricky thing for the Fed because you do have this this lag, um, and when you look at real time data, you know, I mean, there again, there are parts of the economy that are slowing very dramatically, uh, other parts that are more resilient, which just complicates the Fed's the Fed's job. But we know that one of the things that they are focused on is the labor market, and we know that the labor market is probably the last thing to move. Uh, so I, I do think a lot of what will go into how the Fed starts to slow down the pace of tightening is how much they're willing to, uh, as an article of faith, recognize that financial conditions, whether they've eased a bit in the last two months, are much, much tighter than they were, and it takes a while for that to work through the system. And you know, one of the, the metrics that I think is, is the most startling and, and probably you know the most representative of how much things have tightened is if you look at short-term real uh, yields so just taking as an example you know short-term two-year real yields they're two percent now the, the thing that blows my mind is that as recently as eight months ago in march they were negative three percent so we've had a 500 basis point swing in real rates in less than eight months that that's astounding, and and I think that is a very real tightening of financial conditions. It's hard for me to think that it doesn't take us into restrictive territory, and it probably though takes some time for that to fully work through the system. Maybe we could take a few moments, pivot over to asset allocation, Russ. What are your views on the returns and 
volatility for different asset classes in 2023. The path for returns unlikely to be a straight line. So do you expect markets to get worse before they get better? We, we don't necessarily think that to get worse, but it's going to be choppy. Uh, and we also should, also should recognize that, you know, we we rallied about 15% off the, off the intraday low in October relatively quickly. So I, I don't think this is a straight up market. Uh, you know, in terms of the broad asset allocation, you know, I think going into 2023, we are fairly neutral on, on equities. So we've got a, a beta to our benchmark close to zero. We're still modestly underweight duration, mostly at the long end of the curve. We've been pulling back our overweight to the dollar, still modestly overweight, uh, a preference for the U.S. and a preference for quality. And I'd say, lastly, a preference for income. Uh, you know, in a world in which financial conditions are still, you know, somewhat of a headwind, we're going to see slower growth. Uh, we do think that the risk reward in credit for the first time, maybe since before the financial crisis is actually interesting. So you think about, you know, where is their risk in our portfolio at the asset allocation level? Uh, it's in the credit side. It's, it's in IG. It's in high yield. Uh, we're adding a bit of EM. It's in securitized and mortgages. Uh, and again, that doesn't reflect our view that equities can't go higher, but simply that, you know, your question, it's not a straight up line. Uh, and at least if you think about, you know, getting a five to a seven, eight percent yield and doing it with mid single digit volatility, you know, we're leaning into that carry theme, at least going into the first part of 2023. Russ, you mentioned that um, you were said you're a little bit short on duration or like kind of below benchmark. I know we were kind of earlier this year that direction and we've sort of incrementally added duration. So most recently in October, we, I'd say slightly longer than our, our benchmark duration, you know, very, very slightly. What's your thinking then in terms of that duration call? Is it a view that, you know, you think rates are going to still go materially higher before that's the kind of the point where you'd want to buy duration? You know, I'd say it's, it's, it's somewhat nuanced. You know, we, we're actually very comfortable owning the front end of the curve because we think that there you've largely discounted where the terminal Fed funds rate is going to be. So a lot of our underweight is on the back end of the curve. And, I, you know, maybe at a simple level, you know, you think about where's the terminal Fed funds rate. Uh, you know, it's probably, you know, close to 475.5. You know, right now the 10-year is 1% below that. You know, generally the 10-year the peaks closer to the terminal Fed funds rate. We, we did tag 435, you know, earlier this fall. So I, I don't think we're, we're a huge distance from your thinking, but, you know, we'd be more comfortable buying the back of the curve, you know, with a four handle, you know, maybe around 420 uh, is, you know, maybe one potential place we'd start to close that gap. But, you know, again, right now, I think the underweight is really about the shape of the curve. Uh, we are comfortable holding, you know, the front end because that's where I think, you know, you've discounted most of the hikes. So another question, uh, you, know, you mentioned you were kind of like neutral on equities overall. And in some of your opening comments, you know, you, you sort of implied that, you know, maybe the lows for, for this equity bear market are already, already in, you know, I think it was around like 3650 approximately for the S&P. Uh, is that, do you think that that's kind of, you know, that's the case? Uh, and, and sort of like the bias would be like as we, as the, you know, are you almost saying, like, you know, the market pulls back, we're going to buy the dip? Or do you think that, you know, we could sort of retest the lows? And if so, you know, what are the kind of the factors kind of behind that? I think, you know, at a high level, we would buy the dip. Uh, so, you know, our, our view is that you probably have seen the lows in equities. And I say that's predicated on a couple of things. You know, one, as we spoke about earlier, we don't think we're looking at a serious recession. It's either a soft landing or a very mild recession. Two, you know, we're going to assume the market is generally right about the terminal Fed funds rate. So, 
if though if you hold to those views, then I think you know when you get down to the mid threes on the S and P, you're level with some value in equities. Uh, what could get what could we, we be wrong about? I think we're wrong if inflation proves sticky, and the Fed goes to six, not five, because that's an environment where one, you know, financial conditions are going to tie it in much further, and two, you're probably going to inflict more pain on the economy. We're assuming, so that's where I think we'd start to question that view on equities. But right now. You know, we, we brought that position back to neutral. Uh, and again, I think we'd be inclined to add on a dip uh, rather than I- assuming that we're not seeing evidence that inflation is proving stickier than our, our central thesis. So just curious, you know, given that view, which I think I'm sort of in that, that same camp, but it goes back to some of you know, the opening comments about what is sort of driving the markets this quarter, you know, from, from positioning and sentiment to also the fundamentals. I know for like hedge funds, like macro hedge funds, for example, at the start of the quarter, they were very lightly positioned and, and they were like looking to, you know, kind of chase the rally higher more so than they were about the markets kind of crashing down. But just in the past few weeks, anecdotally, when I've talked to, you know, other, I'd say in long only type of investors, like that's, that's how I kind of categorize ourselves, that the sentiment is, Look, there could be more volatility, more choppiness, but I'm not sure when the bottom's going to come in or, or when I, I know I can't time the bottom exactly. I think, you know, the, the, the sell-off, you know, might be relatively modest. So I'm going to start to kind of maybe kind of wade into the market. So it feels like there's a little bit of a kind of a buy the dip mentality among asset allocators in a way that didn't exist two months ago, perhaps predicated on just, you know, the recent change we've seen in, in some of the data suggesting it's a little more likely we can get a soft landing. Perhaps the Fed is you know, getting close to being done now. Would you say that you're has your view shifted on this in the past couple of months based on the, on the more recent data, or is this a view you've kind of held for a while, like since we had the lows back in, in September? No, I think we're probably, our, our views have evolved more recently. And you know, the only kind of uh, you know, thought I would add is I, I think that we're inclined to buy the dip, but not at the market level. You know, and this has come up in a bunch of discussions. Uh, you know, China's had a nice bounce. We don't necessarily want to own the entire you know, index, but there are, there are names we, 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 do, we do like there. Uh, you know, speaking with our, our healthcare analysts, we see some opportunities coming up in pharma, in stable growth. Uh, we still like energy as a theme, particularly after the recent sell-off, some of the ag space. So we, we are probably in the buy-the-dip camp uh, with, with two caveats. One, we are keeping an eye to make sure our beta doesn't drift too high in the near term. I think that might evolve as we get into the new year. And two, I still think it's an environment where you want to pick your spots Part of the economy, parts of the economy likely prove more resilient than others. Uh, and we'd rather buy it in single name space than buy at the index level. Jason, do you want to get your views on the path forward for returns as we're heading into 2023? From your vantage point, are we heading into choppier waters or perhaps smoother sailing? Our 2023 uh, outlook is titled The Year of Inflections. With the idea that we're, we expect to see inflection points in growth that's, that's slowing down and it should inflect at some point next year to start to kind of reaccelerate, uh, both for the U.S. and globally, and inflection points in Fed and central bank policy of where they stop raising rates, uh, minimum pause, and, and likely before your rent start to cut rates, so the inflection there. And already we're seeing like inflation kind of rolling over and, and likely to continue on that path. So that's kind of the dynamic we expect. Those inflection points tend to mean different market regimes take hold. But until we get to those inflection points, the the dynamic we've had for much of this year of you know volatile sort of choppy range bound markets were sizable market swings. I think that's likely to persist as we head into at least the first quarter of next year. 
uh, you know, given the move we've seen this quarter, you know, 15% from the lows uh, for the S&P, it suggests near term there could be some consolidation. You know, we, you know, we could get a speech from Jay Powell that, you know, has echoes of his Jackson Hole speech at the end of August that caused markets to pull back. So I think that that is to me you know, kind of the dynamic we're facing, you know, for the time being, which is why you know the overall sort of recommended position is still, you know. Leading towards a little more defensive allocations, up in quality, but not RID risking kind of across portfolios. You know, basically trying to get through, you know, the winter and then looking for green shoots in the spring or at some point in the spring where those inflection points will materialize. And if they do, you know, especially when you're at lower levels, and I would agree with with Russ that you know at the current level this is not necessarily attractive risk reward for equities. But if you you know retouch the lows that we had uh, you know earlier this year, then that starts to become kind of a more compelling kind of opportunity to, to add risk to the portfolio. Especially if then the Fed is like done hiking, if it looks like inflation is clearly lower and and, and falling, so you have disinflation and growth looks like it's troughing because on the other side. A Fed cutting rates, growth slowly reaccelerated, inflation coming down. That's historically a pretty good environment for risk assets. With your respective market and economic outlooks in mind, maybe we can spend the time remaining talking about your views when it comes to portfolio positioning. So, Jason, perhaps what we can do is provide our guest, Russ Kosterich, with the final word. So I'll ask you, Jason, from CIO's vantage point, what are your thoughts on positioning portfolios right now? And what are some of your favorite trades across asset classes going into 2023? Well, starting with fixed income, the you know, I mentioned earlier that we're slightly long duration. Although you know the attractiveness does depend on where we think you know yields are going to go, and since yields have been declining, you know, and sort of you know are in our right in our favorable direction recently, if it declines too much, then it's an opportunity that will maybe kind of you know, lighten up a little bit, especially if you can get decent income at the front end of the curve. Um, so kind of up in quality, I was also another thing we like agency MBS is in a you know, very safe asset class that has attractive kind of spread right now versus treasuries. We like investment grade corporate bonds versus kind of riskier corporate credit. Again, kind of more up in quality, um, and ultimately if rates do decline, you know either because the Fed is going to start to cut or we get a recession, that's an asset class. So, so within fixed income, we expect they're going to be relative outperformers. But on equities, um, still believe value is going to outperform growth, you know, because, you know, an environment where, you know, at least nominal GDP will still probably be in the 3% plus range for, you know, a decent chunk of next year. That's historically an environment where value stocks can outperform. Uh, and as long as rates stay high, I think the, the, the headwinds for, for growth stocks still remain in place. In terms of sectors, you know, something we like is energy. It's been beaten up a little bit recently uh, as oil prices have declined, largely on concerns about, you know, these recent lockdowns in China and the rising COVID cases. But as that sort of eases up, you know, we think that the, the fundamentals suggest oil prices go higher and energy stocks, you know, should kind of benefit from that. Otherwise, a lot more defensive allocated with the equities favoring sectors like stables and healthcare that, you know, provide a little more protection, uh, you know, in time when markets are going to be choppy and potentially recession is, you know, is a risk uh, going forward. And then, Russ, the final word to you in terms of your guidance when it comes to positioning portfolios and what looks most attractive to you heading into 2023. Yeah, thanks. Now, look, I think we have a lot of the similar themes. Uh, we're probably a little bit more close to benchmark on our equity weight, still a little bit cautious on the long end of the curve. Uh, we'd probably feel better about that if the 10-year was, you know, four and a quarter rather than 375. Very much agree with Jason on on credit. Uh, we like IG. We're adding back some EM. We like the securitized space. So income is definitely a big theme. Uh, qu- up in quality on the equity side as well with characteristics like profitability, 
earnings consistency, return of capital. The one place, uh, just to keep it interesting, where there's a little bit of a difference in view is we do like stable growth. And the thesis is that we are going to get some further deceleration in the economy. Earnings are going to become a, a scarce commodity. And in a world in which real rates uh, may start to go down and certainly rate volatility, I shouldn't say certainly, nothing certain, but rate volatility is likely to go down. Uh, we think that's an environment where stable growth, not early growth, but stable growth, is likely to do, uh, I think, a good deal better than it has in 2022. Well, Russ and Jason, thank you both very much for spending some time with our listeners, our clients today on How Should I Be Positioned? A very productive session. We covered a lot of ground, and you've left our listeners with a lot to consider as we head into 2023. So thank you again for your time and looking forward to having you both back on the podcast. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Russ, for joining us today. It was a great conversation. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.